Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again this Sunday morning. I would imagine that most of us know what it is like to uh, look forward to a day, and yet at the same time as having a, a sense of excitement and anticipation about that day, also having this sense of sort of intrepidation, this sense of uh, um, a fear, of anxiety. Maybe for some of us, that's how we looked at graduation uh, when we were getting ready to finish high school or, or college. Uh, we were looking with excitement because we just plain wanted to be done with math class. But uh, at the same time, we knew that when that day of graduation actually came, it would be the start of a new season. It would be a stepping, if you like, into adulthood with all of the responsibilities and some of the challenges that go along with that. Maybe for others of us, uh, we uh, can think back to a time when we were looking forward to the day of our wedding. We were excited because uh, of the reality that we would get to enter into this covenant relationship between God and, uh, and before others, but with this person that we love and long to spend the rest of our life with. And yet at the same time, to be kind of intimidated, to be a little overwhelmed, to be a little panicked over the reality of, I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life. Most of us know what it's like to have these kind of milestone moments, whatever form or shape those days may take. Uh, we know what it's like to have those either in our own life or to see other people experiencing those kinds of life-changing days. But there's another day that the Scriptures speak about, a day that is certain, a day that is coming, a day that every single person will face, a day that we ought all not only to know about, but to live every other day in light of. And it's a day that's spoken out, uh, about in uh, great depth in the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah. As you know, uh, this summer you've been traveling together through uh, the Book of the Twelve, as it's known in the Hebrew scriptures, or the minor prophets, as we are more accustomed to referring to them here in our English Bibles. And we find ourselves this morning in, in the book of Zephaniah. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to join me there as we're going to discover together that the day that we're talking about is the day of the Lord, and that the day of the Lord is a day of coming judgment and of joy. So therefore, we ought to seek the Lord now before he comes. Here in Zephaniah, uh, we know very little about this prophet Zephaniah other than what's given to us in the very first verse of the first chapter where it says, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we know that this prophet was prophesying in the days of Josiah the king. Josiah was uh, the guy who became king at eight years old 
Uh, we're talking here somewhere in the period of around about 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. We don't know exactly uh, the date of Zephaniah's ministry here, but within that period of time, uh, Josiah was the one who, after they found a copy of the, uh, of the law of God, uh, kind of covered in dust in a storeroom in the temple, he read it or had it read to him, and his heart was so moved that he led the nation back towards faithfulness in their worship to God. It's interesting because uh, Zephaniah, even though we don't know much about him, we actually have the most elongated genealogy of any of the prophets that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, it goes back uh, four generations. And I think that that's not so much because of who Zephaniah was or not so much because of who his father was or even who his grandfather was. But from what we can understand here, his great, great grandfather was Hezekiah who was the last of the good kings, the last of the faithful kings in the southern kingdom of Judah until the days when Josiah came to reform. And so there seems to be, even at the beginning of uh, this, this book, a, a, a link back, a pointing back to the days when Judah was faithfully following the Lord. And so even as these changes, even as these reforms which were good were coming about and were being promoted, it, there's again this pointing back to how the people were supposed to be faithful in worship as they were in the days of King Hezekiah. Well, we're going to do a little bit of an overview of this fairly short book this morning, but uh, as we look at chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 2, we see kind of a common theme that through this series of the Minor Prophets, we've seen a whole lot of destruction, a whole lot of judgment, a whole lot of declaration of God's pouring out of wrath, and we kind of see that continue here. It says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And it's interesting because what we begin to see unfolding here is that the day of the Lord is a day of coming judgment. So as the book unfolds, we're going to see this idea of the day of the Lord spoken of over and over again, but it is first and foremost a day of coming judgment. And what's interesting as we look at these first few verses that I've just read is that there seems to be here the idea that this day will be a day when the Lord will wipe away all of the inhabitants of the whole earth, that this is going to be a total, a complete, and utter sweeping away. In fact, there seems to be here the idea almost of a decreation. What do I mean by that? Well, when you think back to the book of Genesis and you think about the order of things which God created, what we find Zephaniah declaring here is the exact opposite order. He lists in reverse everything that we saw from Genesis. And so he says, I will sweep away man and beast. Of course, those were the last of the things that were created in creation. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. And so we have this idea of this being utterly sweeping of all the inhabitants of the earth. Maybe our mind goes a little bit to the New Testament and we see how, uh, for example, in the book of Revelation, it speaks about the fact that, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Why? 
because the old ones have passed away. So there's this idea here, even with the prophet pointing to this coming day to set their gaze on this, that it will be a day of judgment. But more than that, it will be a day where there is a ridding of the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants. I'm sorry, in verse 3, I will cut off from mankind uh, the rubble with the wicked uh, from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all of its inhabitants. This rubble is really speaking of stumbling blocks, all that tempted people to idolatry, the things that they, in a sense, tripped over in order to worship false things rather than the true God. God says, I will wipe away. And then in verse 4, 5, and 6, we see that not only that, but it will be a day when idolaters will be judged. It speaks about the cutting off of the place of the remnant of Baal, who was the Canaanite false god. Uh, about cutting off those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear, uh, do not swear to the Lord, but rather by Milcom, who was an Ammonite god associated with the stars. And so again, there's this idea of this wiping out, and we get to see a glimpse of some of the reasons for this judgment, because these are an idolatrous people. But as the prophet continues, we see that not only will, he, will the day be a day of judgment, but the day of the Lord is near. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the the king's sons, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. Now this idea here of the day of the Lord we see clearly declared here uh, in, in verse 7, and it's something that not only do we find all throughout the Old Testament declared at different times, but it's also something that we see in the New Testament. So one of the things we need to understand is, for example, because we find in Second Peter as well as in First and Second Thessalonians, as well as other places through the New Testament, this idea of the day of the Lord, that as Zephaniah here is proclaiming, as he is prophesying, it is something that they were go going to get a foreshadowing, a glimpse of, even in their day. And yet, even for us still today, this day of the Lord that is being spoken of is something yet to come. In fact, we discover from the pages of the New Testament that the day of the Lord is associated with the return of Christ Jesus, when he will come not as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king and judge. And the declaration here is the day of the Lord is near. We find that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment for those who follow the ways and the superstitions of the surrounding nations and yet ignore the ordinances of God. You'll notice here 
speaks about this idea of sacrifice. It speaks about the punishing of the officials and the king's sons and those who array themselves in foreign attire. That does not mean that if the tag on your shirt says made in Vietnam, that this is aimed at you. That's not what this is talking about. What this is rather talking about is the fact that they were wanting to be like the other nations when God had made very clear to his people that they were to be set apart. They were to be distinct. And not only were they wanting to be like the other nations in that they wanted to dress like the other nations, but they wanted to do all of the things that the other nations did. And they followed the suspicions and the superstitions and the religious practices of the other nations. And so uh, we see here, for example, uh, in verse 9, it says, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. That seems like a strange statement. Unless you happen to remember in 1 Samuel uh, that the Philistines had managed to capture the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and they took it into Philistine territory. And as a part of this, they put it in the house of their false god, Dagon. And the priests uh, set this before this giant statue of Dagon. But the next day when they came, they found that Dagon's statue had fallen down prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So they set it back up again, thinking, well, this was an accident. But the next day they came, and they found that the statue had bowed down again prostrate, and its head and its hands had broken off on the threshold of the temple where it had laid. And therefore, they had developed this superstition that it was wrong to touch the threshold because the threshold was holy. And so now the people of Judah were doing the same thing. Well, the Philistines would hop over the threshold because they were showing a sign of reverence to their god, Dagon. So we're going to do the same thing. You know, there's a lot of ways in which people follow superstitions today. Uh, that we get ourselves, if we're honest, wrapped up in all sorts of things. And yet, the problem was that they were conducting themselves with violence and with fraud. In other words, they were concerned about these ridiculous religious rituals, these superstitious ideas, but their lives reflected that they had no concern whatsoever for the simple instructions of the Lord to be a people of grace, to be a people of mercy, to be a people of justice, to be those who show compassion and integrity. And you know what? Even sometimes within the church, we'll find people who are so concerned about not scheduling something on Friday the 13th because, whoa, it's a bad day. And we act as if we are somehow under the power of these sorts of ridiculous pagan superstitions while paying no mind and having no uh, investing no energy in obeying the things of the Lord and recognizing the greatness of who he is. And so the Lord declares that this is not only a day of judgment that will sweep all on the earth, but it will particularly be a day of punishment for those who are like this. More than that, it'll be a day of sweeping away and of punishment for those who are 
complacent. Look with me at verse 12 and following. It says, at that time I will search Jerusalem and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will, do, will not do good, nor will he do ill. And so there were people amongst the people of Judah who were going around, and uh, uh, their attitude was, oh, yes, of course, we, we, we believe in God. Uh, of, of course, we, we perform the sacrifices. We go to the temple. We do the religious stuff that we're supposed to do. But then they would walk out the door, and they would live their lives as practical agnostics. That is, they didn't deny the existence of God, but they acted as if it didn't matter what they did because God wasn't really concerned about it anyway. God doesn't show up for good, and he doesn't show up for ill. Uh, we'll kind of do the religious stuff, and then God doesn't really care two hoots about what we do the rest of our time. You know, probably, if we're honest, one of the great tragedies in the church across our land is that we, more than many nations, have churches that are filled on a Sunday morning, and yet we have a culture that is becoming increasingly careless toward the things of God. If indeed it were really true that all of the people who say they have a relationship with Jesus Christ had a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, it seems to me that our communities would look somewhat different than what they do. And I want to suggest to you that is because many of us fall into this same trap of going through the motions and yet having this complacency, thinking, oh, you know what? This is great that we gather together on a Sunday morning. Let's sing God's praise. Let's rejoice that, yes, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Thanks be to God for that. And let's walk out those doors and get involved in all of the things that we get involved in. Most of it is not bad but go through each day, move through each conversation we have at work, each conversation we have at school, go about our grocery shopping, go about our entertainment, and do it all as if God is not really interested or involved. And on the day of the Lord, he says, I will seek through the city and I will put to punishment those who profess and yet don't think that I am involved for good or for evil in the affairs of their life. What's more, it's clear here as chapter 1 concludes that this day of the Lord that Zephaniah is speaking about is a serious, terrible day. It is a day of judgment it is a terrifying day, and nothing that anybody puts their trust in of their own making will be able to deliver them from that day. Verse 14, the day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, 
A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and of anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and of battle cry against fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah wants his readers, wants his listeners to understand that this day is sure. This day is coming. There is nothing but nothing but nothing that anybody can do to prevent this day coming. And when it comes, it will be a terrifying day. And those who think, that by amassing wealth, they will somehow be able to rescue or deliver themselves from it, will find that they are utterly hopeless on that day. You kind of see this theme, as I've said, through the minor prophets. It seems like you could summarize the minor prophets by kind of saying, uh, um, the day is coming, repent! Repent! day of judgment. And yet, as we move to chapter 2, as Zephaniah continues to prophesy, we actually see a glimmer here. And it's a glimmer that is going to become brighter even as we move this morning through the remainder of this book. You see, in chapter 2 it says, gather together Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so the instruction here is take heed of this coming day and seek the Lord before it comes. Uh, he's saying make no mistake that the day of the Lord is coming. But here God gives this warning through the prophet Zephaniah to his people so that they will take heed and so that they will throw themselves on his mercy. The warning here is this day is coming. So before it comes, seek the Lord. When it comes, it will be too late to seek the Lord. So seek him before it comes. And the instruction here is given to the humble and to those who do his just commands. In other words, to those who are spiritually receptive. Those who recognize their need of him and his lordship over their lives. The instruction is seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. And this idea of seeking is to earnestly chase after, is to diligently set yourself to pursue this. And we see here that in seeking, he says, perhaps you may be hidden 
on the day of the anger of the Lord. God is not compelled to respond with forgiveness. Scriptures are abundantly clear. The Lord has said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And so to a disobedient people, he is reminding them, seek the Lord because the Lord is merciful. Seek him, but be under uh, no misunderstanding that somehow you can manipulate God into showing mercy to you. No, no, no. You come before the Lord because he is the Lord. You bow before him in repentance because you have sinned and he is holy. And you plead with him for forgiveness. But he is under no obligation to give it to you. He gives because he is gracious. Not because you did the right thing. You know, this is here place that we find ourselves in the Old Testament, and yet this is such a New Testament message. It's really a reminder that if we, as we are sat here today, if any of us does not yet know the Lord, if we have just kind of been dancing around Christianity, if we have been playing games and thinking, well, maybe I'll get around to taking it seriously later on, that we should be aware that this day is coming, that the situation is urgent, that the need is great, and that now, now is the day to seek the Lord. Now is the day to plead for his mercy. Now is the day to turn to Jesus and to, and to praise him that even when we didn't know that we needed a Savior, that he bore our sin to make a way for us to receive the mercy and the grace, the forgiveness of the Lord God Almighty. And so here, even some 640 years or so before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, we see this, this idea that we are to seek the Lord and the forgiveness, the mercy that, that God lavishes on those he chooses comes through Christ because of what he has done in bearing our sin on the cross. Through the remainder of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, we see this idea of the certainty of the coming of the Lord, and it is attested by the judgment that he has now already brought on the nation. Throughout the remainder of chapter 2, we see uh, a declaration being made against the various different nations that surrounded Judah. Uh, first of all, the nations to the east, then to the west, then to the south, and finally the Assyrians to the north, and a declaration of their destruction. And it's interesting because even in this, it talks about a prosperity for Judah. It talks about the fact that God will wipe these away and that the people of Judah will actually benefit as a result. And, and, and so the fact that God now has done this in history, we can trace back and see each of these fulfilled. We see a foreshadowing of the certainty of the coming day of the Lord because we see its partial fulfillment in what is now history to us, even though it was originally future to the people of Judah. 
but we can imagine what it must have been like for them to hear this. I mean, you know what it's like when, when, when somebody that you don't like very much kind of gets their comeuppance. You're like, oh, this is great. And so Zephaniah is, is declaring this judgment against these surrounding nations, and probably the people of Judah are like, oh, yeah, God, wipe them out. Oh, yeah, they deserve it. And so through the remainder of chapter 2, we see this declaration, this declaration, this declaration, all about the surrounding nations, and then we get to chapter 3. And there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see that God doesn't just announce the judgment against the surrounding nations, but God announces judgment against Jerusalem and the people of Judah. We see that especially in the early verses of chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious, verse 1. And defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And then we see more detail about the coming destruction for her. And what we're reminded of here is that when God's word is proclaimed, what the people of Judah needed to understand was that they ought not to assume that it was simply for everyone except them. And you know, the same is true whenever we encounter God's word, whether it be that we're reading it in the quietness of our dining room, sat there with a cup of coffee, whether it be when we gather together in a small group, whether we're on Zoom or whether we're here in person on a Sunday morning, when the word of the Lord is proclaimed, never assume it is for everybody else except you. That's what the people of Judah were reminded of here. That when the gospel declaration is made, it is for you because you need Christ. When, when repentance of sin is called for, it, it is for you to stop and humbly before the Lord plead with him to reveal to you those areas that are hidden in your heart where you have grieved him, where you are living in a way that is contrary to his glorious ways. And then to repent of it. Not to say, oh, I'm okay. When obedience is instructed, it is for you and it is for me to say, God, where in my life am I living in a way that I am lacking obedience to this? Where am I making excuses? When participation is required from God's word, it is for you and for me to, to humble ourselves before God and say, God, how does this apply to me? Where should I be using my gifts? Who should I be serving? What would you have me do, oh Lord? Because you see, the declaration of the coming day of the Lord is sure. Chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of the fact that the decision is made. God will bring this day, and it, it will be a day of judgment. And for those on that day who have played games, for those who have sought to, to excuse themselves, for those who have, have, have thought themselves okay but have never truly humbled themselves before the Lord and experienced his mercy, it will be a day of great terror 
and judgment. Folks, this is one of the reasons why those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is in him must have hearts that are heavy and burdened for those around us who don't know him because this day is coming. It's coming. And they need to seek the Lord now while he may yet be found. But not only is the day of the Lord certain and coming day of judgment, but the day of the Lord will result in joy as he gathers together those on whom he has set his love and mercy. And so as I said at the beginning, the day of the Lord is a coming day of judgment and of joy. And this book of Zephaniah ends with the joy. A couple of weeks ago, I was here and was preaching through Nahum, and I'm kind of glad that Zephaniah ends with the joy because Nahum pretty much stays with the judgment and the wrath and the destruction for the whole thing. But the serious nature of this coming day of the Lord, that is sure, must not be ignored. I was tempted to immediately go to chapter 3 and just spend all of our time this morning on chapter 3. But to do so is to miss the message of God's word. It is both judgment and joy. And if this morning you know what it is to call Christ Jesus your Savior, your Lord, if you know what it is to have experienced the mercy of God, to be able to truly rejoice in the song that we sang, uh, our sins, they are many. <laughs> but his mercy is so much more than this day that is coming. This day when Christ Jesus himself will return is a day in which he will gather together all of those who he has set his love and mercy upon and God himself will change the hearts of his people and he will gather them from the nations and they will be recipients of his joyful, gracious mercy. Look at chapter 3 beginning in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. God will do it. God is the initiator. Those who experience his mercy, those who are transformed by his grace, are transformed because he initiates it, because he is the one who gathers, because he is the one who brings about change. He is the one who regenerates. He is the one who gives new birth. He is the one who is conforming us to the likeness of his son. On that day, you shall not be put to shame, verse 11 because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove them from your midst, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Again, God is the one who will remove our sinful deeds from us. What a wonderful picture there of the gospel. We see 
this gathering that will take place. We see the fact that in verse 13 it says that that uh, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. This coming day of the Lord will be a day of rest and a day of peace for those who know what it is to have experienced the mercy of God. And perhaps when we think of the heights, uh, the, the splendor of the, uh, of the high places of the book of Zephaniah, uh, we don't get any higher than when we get to the end of chapter 3 and this incredible declaration which calls on those of us who know the Lord to rejoice. To rejoice. We should rejoice, first of all, because the Lord's people will not face the anger of his judgment. Verse 14 tells us, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment's against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Friend, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, then just as this was proclaimed all those years ago in the days of Zephaniah the prophet, so we know and stand on this truth today and look forward to the fullness of it yet to come. But you and I no longer are subject to the fierce and righteous anger and judgment of the Lord. Why? Because Christ bore it in his body on the cross so that we would not bear it any longer. And so instead of this fearful, terrified anticipation of this coming day, now we are to look to this coming day with joy. Because it will be a day, yes, where the wrath of the Lord will be poured out against all unrighteousness, but where we will see that Christ himself is our shield, our righteousness, the one who has borne our judgment, and we stand forgiven. More than that, it goes on, and we see that we should rejoice, not simply because we will not face his judgment, but we should rejoice because the Lord is in your midst, and there is no reason to fear says that in verse 15, second part of verse 15, the, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This will be a day of peace, a day of coming into the presence of the Lord. You remember the book of Revelation, and God declares, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and, and they shall be with me. We will be in the presence of the Lord, and there will be no cause for fear. And we can rejoice even now, knowing that he rejoices over us. I mean, think about this. Rejoice in God's rejoicing over you. Verse 17, chapter 3, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I mean, is that your view of God? Is that how you picture God, that he is a God who sings and dances over his people? Such is the, the merciful, gracious, lavish love of God toward those who are his. 
he rejoices over those who are his. Tried to do a little bit of study into this and have not been able to fully come to a defined conclusion, but some of you will remember that in Luke chapter 15, uh, the parable that we read there of the lost sheep, it says there will be more rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. Well, where are the angels? They're in heaven. They minister in the throne room of heaven. Who's doing the rejoicing? Certainly the angels, but God himself. God himself. Even there in that parable, we seem, as Jesus explains that parable, we seem to see a glimpse there of the fact that our God is a God of generous joy. Our God leaps and dances with joy over his people. And friend, if you are a follower of Christ Jesus, this prophetic word of the book of Zephaniah is, yes, a sober warning because the day is coming. But it is also a call to rejoice. It is a call to rejoice because the judgment of the Lord is no longer against those who are in Christ. And no matter how you may be tempted to define yourself, no matter what your circumstances may dictate right now, no matter who, uh, how your boss or a family member or a neighbor or may try to define you, God himself reminds you that you are so deeply loved, that you are so precious to him that he rejoices over you as his precious and beloved child. And there is coming a day, there is coming a day where we will see the Lord singing over his children, a day where we will enter into his presence without fear, a day where as this book ends, we will not suffer reproach or shame, but rather that we will enjoy his restoration of all things. You see, what Zephaniah declared to that people so many years ago, what they needed to understand, and what we see continue to unfold even as we move into the pages of the New Testament, is that a day has been set. That as with many milestone days in our own life, there is a sense in which there is both an anticipation and excitement, but also a fear, and uncertainty for those who are apart from the Lord. But for those of us who know him, we understand that the day of the Lord, yes, it is coming. It is a day of judgment and of joy. But since we know that it is coming, we are to seek the Lord now before he comes. We are to live today in light of that day. We are to live every moment in light of that day. 
even though we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's coming, we do know that we need to keep short accounts with God. We need to deal quickly with our sin that we might enjoy fellowship with him in each moment. If you or somebody that you know does not yet know what it is to bow the knee to Christ, then today, don't put it off any longer. If you've got a loved one that you need to speak to this afternoon about this, don't put it off any longer. As the author of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Because the day is near. In fact, this day could even be today. This day is near. And so if you belong to him, do not be proud. Do not be arrogant. Do not look down on others. But ask the Lord to give you a heart that is heavily burdened for those who are living today without any glimpse of this day. But even as you ask him to burden your heart for that, ask him to help you to know what it is to rejoice in his rejoicing over you. Friends, the day of the Lord is coming. May it be for each of us a day of immeasurable joy as we experience the welcome and the singing of our gracious Father. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our God, we are so easily distracted by the affairs of today. Would you help us to remember that we must live in light of the day, the day of the Lord that is coming. Thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But Lord, we know that your patience, your kindness, is to leave room for repentance. And that there is coming a day when Christ returns, that there will be no more opportunity to seek you. I pray that any who are here, even under the sound of my voice, whether over Zoom or in person today, that should there be any who do not know that they know the mercy of the Lord in their own life, that they would seek you as this text instructs us to do while there is yet time. Lord, I pray that you would, for each of us who do know you, give us hearts that are indeed burdened for those who don't know you, that we might be urgent in sharing the good news of Christ, pleading with people to turn to you. But also, Lord, that we would, in light of the day that is to come, that we would find great hope and even great joy, knowing that no matter what we may face, today, in that day, 
we will experience your presence, your joy, and that you will restore all things according to your glorious, good, and perfect will. Lord, thank you, indeed, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Today, we seek you, our merciful God. Help us to draw near to you and to live in all things for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.